Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to an episode of Small Talk, Big Topics, and AGA Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Whitson, and today I am with my colleague, CS. Hi, CS. How are you? Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to see your face. It's been a while for us. Likewise. I'm glad we're back on board. I know. Season two, baby. Um, So today we have a topic that I know both you and I are passionate about. We are talking Mm -hmm. about how to become a clinical expert or how to become a medical expert. And you, I would venture to say, are a rising, if not already, IBD expert. Thank you. (laughs) I dabble in the esophagus a little bit, but this is something that both of us had mentors in, and it's an important thing for our careers. Exactly. And I think our special guests today really go from A to B, and they're nationally well-known in their respective fields, but they're so humble and also so clear and how they got to where they are. And hopefully this will be of help to our listeners. So who do we have, Matt? So uh, person number one, um, Frank Scott, Associate Professor of Medicine at University of Colorado, who is an IBD specialist and is a clinical epidemiologist who specializes in, among other things, Markov models, which will have a reference on today's podcast. That's right. That's so cool. And our second guest is Dr. Reina Yalapati. She is an associate professor of medicine at University of California, San Diego. And not only that, but she's a clinical expert in esophagology. She's the lead author of the Chicago Classification Version 4, as well as the medical director of the Center for Esophageal Diseases at UCSD. So we're super lucky to have both of them come on board and chat with us for this podcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing about their journey at, from fellowship all the way through advanced fellowship, junior faculty, and really where they are today. And I'm pretty sure we're going to learn some tidbits uh, for the young GIs out there uh, as to how to get where they are right now. Exactly. So without further ado, let's bring them on. Let's do it. Reina, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everyone what your practice is? Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So I'm Raina Yadlapati. I'm an associate professor at UC San Diego. I'm an esophagologist. So by that, I direct the esophageal program and the motility lab here at UCSD. And I'm also on a physician scientist track and have a clinical translational research program in esophageal diseases. Frank, what about you? Thanks again. I'd just like to reiterate the thank you for the opportunity to chat with you guys today. Really excited to have this conversation. My name is Frank Scott. I'm a gastroenterologist and IBD specialist at the Crohn's and Colitis Center at the University of Colorado, where I'm an associate professor. I am also an outcomes researcher and epidemiologist with expertise in sort of medication positioning, cost-effectiveness analyses, and secondary data sets. So Frank and Raina, maybe we'll start from the beginning. Really, this whole podcast is talking about developing a clinical expertise, and respectively, you're an esophagologist and abiologist. How did you even get there? Did you need formal training or research or your mentor for our trainees? Like, how did you become who you are? Sure. Well, I'll start. So to be completely honest, I had no idea that esophagology was a subspecialty in the field when I got to GI. 
But very quickly, I think it was the clinical experiences that shaped me. You know, I think we probably all remember seeing a patient that like, can't swallow at all any food or liquid and they're having nasal regurgitation or a patient that has like chest pain in the middle of the night and goes to the emergency room. And then we had these great ways of treating them and really exciting technologies like Monometry and FLIP were all evolving when I was in fellowship. So I naturally gravitated to it. But what was really striking was that I realized even though the field was so cutting edge, there were these knowledge gaps. For instance, bread and butter conditions like GERD, we didn't have any consensus on how to approach these patients or how to manage them. And Frank, what led you to kind of your track? Believe it or not, once upon a time, I used to know how to use a pipetter. And in college and first two years of med school, I did some immunology bench work, mostly in pediatric HIV, of all things. And I soon learned during medicine residency that I, was, I really enjoyed the sort of cognitive and procedural aspects of GI and felt that uh, inflammatory bowel disease was sort of a really nice meld of my immunology background and interests and my sort of burgeoning interest in gastroenterology. I did realize though, that I never wanted to touch a pipetter again. And so when thinking about research, which I wanted to be a large part of my future career, I sought out a gastroenterology fellowship program that would give me additional clinical research skills, which I really didn't have at the time. I was fortunate enough to get a, a master's in epidemiology during my GI fellowship, which then sort of transitioned into uh, my outcomes research career. Given my interest in IBD, I also pursued an IBD fellowship, which was an extra year of training, five out of five stars would recommend for anyone who is interested in a career in IBD as well. Raina, did you, you didn't do a fourth year in esophagology, did you? Oh, I sure did. Oh, okay. I would completely agree with Frank. You know, I remember really heavily debating a couple things. One, should I do the research T32 and then also doing an advanced year in esophagus? Because, you know, we already put in so many years and I really wanted to get into practice, but it was probably the best thing that I did. Not just in honing my research skills, but especially for people that want to go into esophagology, you really need, I think, that extra time to understand technologies how to perform the protocol, how to interpret it, like gain, gain competence with interpretation, work with multidisciplinary collaborators like in surgery and nutrition and psychology. So it was probably one of the best decisions I made. So can I ask you, this may sound like a basic question to the both of you, but do you consider yourself an expert? And I ask that in two frames. One, do you consider yourself a clinical expert in your clinical realm, IBD and esophagology? And then do you really consider yourself like a expert scientist or investigator in that space as well. And I wonder if those answers are different. From an outside, I consider both of you experts, to be very clear. I see, yes, I assume you agree with that statement as well. 100%. I would say I consider them differently. I definitely do not think that I'm an expert in methods or research, but I'm really fortunate to have collaborators and others that are these like statistical experts and methods experts. But I have a lot of questions that I think are extremely interesting and we have an awesome research program so we're able to answer them. But I do think over the years with background and also with more clinical experience that I'm gaining expertise in esophagology. Right. I really like the use of the term gaining there. You know, I, I feel like IBD is always going to be a team sport for me. There will always be cases that I am scratching my head about and grateful to have the colleagues that I have at 
University of Colorado back in Philadelphia where I did my fellowship to like pick up the phone and shoot a text message to them and say, hey, have you seen this before? Even though I, you know, I've been doing this for a decade now, there are always going to be sort of challenging cases throughout our career. And having that sort of that network of former mentors and now colleagues that I think can be really helpful from a clinical standpoint. I think research is also a team sport, you know. I think there are some methodologic things that I, I might be, I might dare say I have expertise in at this point, <laughs> having done them a little <laughs> bit more than everyone. But then I look out beyond the IBD space and there are people that are using and applying these methods in ways I've never seen before. And so I think from a research standpoint, one of the things that I learned from some of my mentors where I got my master's in epidemiology was that exposing yourself to people outside of the GI domain that are applying the research methods that you're using can be a really fantastic way to continue to expand your sort of methodologic toolkit so that you don't sort of get stale doing the same sort of things over and over again. I will add a comment to, to Frank's response. So Frank, I consider you a methodologic expert. So I was fortunate enough to go to University of Colorado for my first faculty position at a fellowship. And I was submitting grants focused on esophagology and clinical research and wanted to do cost effectiveness analyses. And I was so lucky to connect with Frank. He was my mentor for Markov modeling. And so you are by all means and were an expert. Thank you. <laughs> I'm blushing. You can't see that on the audio feed. <laughs> on the video, we definitely can see it and we definitely appreciate it. Very pink. <laughs> 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 so maybe if there were an ingredient, I know there's probably no checklist or a cookbook, but we got to two points about how you got to be a clinical expert in your respective fields. So like one was highly advocating for formal training, so dedicated time. And two is you both have research, so really establishing an area of expertise and diving into it. Is there anything else that you think would fit into your development of clinical expertise in your area? I can't stress enough the importance of a mentorship team early on. And I know I keep saying the word team here, but I think it's really nice to have one primary mentor that may be research oriented or clinically oriented, or, or you could strike gold and, and be super lucky like I was with Jim Lewis and having somebody who does exactly what you want to be when you grow up. But you should also have a clinical mentor. You should have a life mentor. The more people you can ping throughout your career with regards to how things are going, where you see yourself now and where you want to be one year, five years from now, the better off you'll be because different people will come at your career trajectory with different opinions and different tips. And I think that can be really, really helpful. I should not have let Frank go first because he completely, uh, <laughs> what I was going to say, but he's completely right. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, mentorship was pivotal. And, you know, I too had a primary mentor, John Pandolfino, but over time learned the importance, I think Frank alluded to this earlier, of having a network outside of just my primary mentor. So in other disciplines institutionally, but then also externally. And our societies do such a great job of this, of being able to develop a network of mentors at other institutions. And then over time, many of my mentors have kind of become sponsors. And now more so than dissecting my research question, it's about allyship and advocacy. Yeah. So I'll give a shout out to one of our old episodes, just because you both mentioned them. We did a long conversation with uh, Jim Lewis and Lynn Chang on mentorship, which actually was 
I don't know, I think one of our favorite conversations. I think we all spouted out a bunch of Jim Lewis-isms throughout our careers. So I'm curious, we're talking about mentorship, we're talking about sponsorship. So it kind of makes natural sense. If you really want to become a clinical expert, it makes sense to seek out that extra training or maybe in a three-year track if you can do more of a subspecialized training within the three years. That makes sense. It makes sense to start producing scholarship in that arena and start arena and start collaborating. What are the other things you guys did? How did you seek out committees? How did you seek out collaborations with other institutions? How did you get to the level where people were inviting you to give talks? Because that seems to be part of that formula to becoming a clinical expert or arguably an expert in a epidemiology or bench science or medical education. So I'm curious how you network that and maybe how do you use the AGA or other communities to get there? Yeah, I mean, I think our national societies are incredible. Like they have so many opportunities for fellows and early career faculty. And, you know, if you're interested in a committee, reach out to reach out to the chair or someone that you know and see if there's an opportunity for you to be on it or if there is an idea or initiative that you want to lead. I think the societies are really willing and it's not just you know, AGA and ACGA and ASGE, but also subspecialty societies. Like for us, there's American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society and American Forget Society. So societies were awesome. And I really like, I really enjoy work with societies. And then also I would say leadership training. So whether it's been leadership workshops or coaching, various different stages as a fellow, as an early career, now moving into mid-career, it's incredibly helpful to reevaluate leadership skills and gain more competence there. Were you doing that at your own institution or were you doing that on a more national scale? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different platforms. So I'll say my my favorite was the double AMC early career women's one. And that was, you know, outside of institution, outside of GI. And so you're really in a unfamiliar yet safe place. But uh, I've also done some through GI societies. Frank and I were both part of a program called Clinical Faculty Scholars Program at University of Colorado. It was really focused on clinical research, but also a lot on leadership. And what would you say is a good time? You mentioned several time points during training or like first two years of faculty or like a few further down the road or which opportunities for which stage? Because I feel like you can't say yes to everything. And to the flip side of Matt's question, it's like there's a lot of things that can make you where you are. But then at the same time, we only have so many hours in a day. Are there certain things that you'd say no to as an advice for, for early trainees and career people? I think in, in terms of timelines, some of it is actually sort of baked into the roles that are available. For example, in IBD fellowship, when I was an IBD fellow, there was a national program where all of the IBD fellows got together at one of the national conferences and got to present their work. And then that sort of slowly transitioned into REACH IBD, which is a program that's run by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, which not only has membership opportunities to network with your peers, which is super important, but also with some of the the bigger names in the field. But then from that, there were leadership opportunities that evolved within reach that I could sort of move into. And that is a common trajectory that I've seen among some more junior IBD folk. There will be roles at the national level, both society and foundation-wise, that are built for junior faculty and mid-career faculty. So you can help to sort of identify those roles and, and apply for those roles that are specific to you. 
I think one of the challenges for junior folk, as you alluded to, CS, is that as you get more, become more successful in, in, a, in achieving these tasks and checking these boxes, that especially at your home institution, there may be increasing pressure to be more involved locally too. And that's really important. But I think that you have to try to balance what tasks you're being asked to do with your short-term and and medium-term trajectory. It can be really easy to get bogged down in certain committees locally that may be time-consuming that aren't going to be particularly beneficial for you. And going back to your local mentor or your, your direct report from a supervisory standpoint and saying, hey, I was offered or asked to do this, but this doesn't necessarily align with what I need to be doing time-wise in terms of my research portfolio or expanding my sort of national name and committees with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, for example. Would it be okay if I skip this opportunity? It can be hard to say no. I like how you phrased that, Frank, because it seems to be conversational, not saying no to shut down other opportunities coming down the pipeline, because I think local support is so important. That's what we're doing every day. The clinical care is local. Everything, you know, collaboration is often local. So making sure we're supporting that as well as our national growth, I guess, if, if you will. Do you guys like track that in a certain way? Do you guys like have a spreadsheet where you're like three-year goals, five-year goals, 10-year goals? Is there a Markov model, Frank, that you follow for career trajectory? I I don't have a model. (laughs) (laughs) That would be awesome. I've never thought about that. That would be super meta Um, (laughs) kind of cool. But I do think it, you know, I do have one of those old school giant marker boards and there are tons of checkboxes and there is a little list of things on that marker board in my office, which I I don't visit as much as I used to in the current era that helped me to stay sort of on track. And I do think that there are sort of natural breaks throughout the academic year where it can be really helpful to sort of take a, a step back you know, maybe block an hour or two on your calendar and and say, this is a little bit of me introspective time and think about what you've done, what you're doing, whether or not it aligns with where you want to be and and what how your goals should be changing um, and, and how you can address that. And then taking that to your leadership and saying, here is where I want to be here is how I envision I'm going, to, I'm going to get there. Here are the things that are working. Here are the things that aren't. I completely agree with Frank. I love the whiteboard and black marker. I am also a sucker for IDPs, individualized development plans. I'm someone who really likes having like formal objective things to answer. It kind of keeps me honest and accountable. So I do still go back to an IDP about every six months and think about those short and long-term goals. And I also try to challenge some of our trainees to do the same. But I think as Frank highlighted, it's not only helpful for you, but it also helps you develop a development plan and maybe a strategic plan. And then to get buy-in from your stakeholders, that's really helpful. I feel like you're missing your calling in medical education with all these IDPs. This is straight out of the program director playbook here. (laughs) (laughs) And do you always meet your metrics on your IDP or how do you modify it for someone who might be new to it? I do not always need it, but I just, it's evolution. It's iterative. And so some parts you're doing great at, and I pat myself on the back. And then the others, I just reformulate a plan. I don't want this to be necessarily self-congratulatory, but is there a moment that the two of you look back on your careers where you kind of said, 
whatever happened, if it was an invited talk or, or a paper where you're like, oh, okay, I got my first foot in the door here. Like, I'm heading in the right direction. Can you remember that moment? Or was there a specific moment? Or is it just kind of been a Sisyphusian pushing the boulder up the hill experience to get where you are? It's probably more iterative than a, a single key moment for me. I do think, you know, with the career that I wanted to embark on with regards to investigation, that um, uh, getting my KO8 was a big step for me. And looking back, that was a trajectory changer that sort of changed the slope of things for me from a research productivity standpoint. But that's, you know... Um, that's only one type of IBD career. And, and, and you know, if you're in a, interested in a career in clinical education or being a clinical expert, like there may be very different sort of points for you. I was actually just reflecting on this because we had our ANMS, American Neurogastroenterology Motility Society conference a couple weeks ago. And I remember my first year out of fellowship, I was invited to give a talk and this was my first invited national talk. And I was really excited and nervous, and I prepared extensively for it. And I was just thinking about it a couple of weeks ago because I, I gave my talk, and it was it was really fun and a topic I'm really passionate about. But that has evolved, and the excitement hasn't changed, but the journey has evolved. Fair enough. So I kind of want to turn the next part of this conversation. What I want to turn to is what should future experts be doing? Right. So we talked a little bit about the expertise. So how would you advise someone that has a passion to look at fellowships? So for trainees that haven't applied yet, how might they start thinking about what fellowships right for them with a set career trajectory or really a, a specific passion they want to pursue? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question because I, I'm kind of split between two. One side of me you know, wants to say you really want to align the clinical research goals with the mentors that are at the institution, the infrastructure, seeing what other fellows have gone on to do. But the other side of me thinks, I think any program will work. You make your career what you want it to be. And if, if it's at your institution, that's incredible. And if it's not, there are external resources through our societies and other institutions. So yeah, I don't think there's a right way of approaching it. But if you're lucky to align with a program that meets your requirements in terms of expertise and mentorship, that's golden. I fully agree with Raina. You know, I feel if you have the opportunity to find a place that has the additional niche training that you think you need for the career track that you want to be on, be it an educator or a clinical investigator or a bench researcher, with the mentorship in that domain as well as in the clinical field of interest, that your your probability of success is going to be higher. I think that if there's any way you can examine what people who have gone through the program that you're looking at have done afterwards, that can also be a really strong indicator. If you are interested in a career in IBD and and, you know, 95% of the IBD interested people that go through this program are now out practicing academic IBD somewhere in all of its flavors. I think that would be an awesome place to land from an IBD standpoint. That being said, I don't think just looking at the first step also precludes you from having to look at what goes on after year, year four. I really wanted to emphasize the sort of importance of that IBD fellowship year for, for people that are serious about IBD. So in fellowship and early career, are there really, maybe from a granular level, steps that they should be taking 
to really set themselves up for a successful career in kind of a, a niche area or a clinical subspecialty? I think we've hit on a few, but maybe we can elucidate them a little further. Or what advice do you give to your fellows? Yeah, if you have an idea of what you want to be, and it's totally okay to go into GI fellowship not having that well formulated too. You should let everyone that will listen to you know that you are interested in that, especially the people that are experts or practicing in that domain. And first year, everywhere you go, first year GI fellowship is going to be challenging. But if you can start to identify who you would like to work with and set up some of those meetings during the first year, I think that can really help sort of grease the wheels for hitting the ground running when you enter second year and third year where you have a little bit more time to start thinking about QI projects or clinical research projects or even bench projects that you can get involved with to sort of further your your interests and deepen your sort of knowledge in that area. Matt, you mentioned earlier for IBD, like sort of remodeling your second and third year. You can definitely do that too. Some programs will have opportunities to do a little bit more inflammatory bowel disease than the general GI fellow would, and those can be really awesome as well. And if you you know sort of first year or early in second year that that's the career path you want to choose, you should inquire about those as well. Yeah, I'd also say staying focused is key. And this, this really only applies it to if you want to be an expert in a subspecialty area. Um, but if you do, you know, for instance, I was doing work in colorectal cancer and ADR and bowel prep, which I loved. Um, But once I realized that I really wanted to be an esophagologist, I completed those projects and then just became completely focused on the esophagus. And then now I'm starting to, you know, dabble in other things that are outside of the esophagus through collaborative research and stuff, but staying focused was really important. So how do you guys define an expert before we dive into this conversation? What are kind of the markings of a clinical expert? Is it the scholarship? Is it their expertise clinically kind of working with them? What are the benchmarks you're looking at for someone you define or view as an expert if you think back to maybe your mentors or those you respected in your respective fields? You know, I used to think of an expert kind of along the traditional metrics, right? Like, so if it's research, then how many publications they have and how many grants they have. And if it's clinical, like how many talks they're giving or so forth. But I think that's also changed for me a bit. And I look at someone's success as a mentor. So how many people have they taken the time out to spread their expertise to, to really push them forward and advocate for them? And I think that is a big distinction between many of us clinicians and researchers compared to the expert that can be at that level. I think that's a great way of looking at it. You know, you know, I, I was re- recently working on a manuscript looking at sort of care pathways and and we used the term IBD expert in in the manuscript and realized like we don't have a, a f- sort of firm definition for what that means. I think the exact criteria that you mentioned in terms of training the next generation is really important. I think some clinical volume and years of experience, plus or minus the additional fellowship training, can help delineate yourself as an expert. And then having identified yourself as having a niche, be it an education or or some aspect of research with some level of local and or regional prominence, I think can be really helpful as well. Speaking of which, maybe that launches us to our second to last questions or kind of near the end of the interview. But 
what advice you did you wish you got to get you where you are? One, like you said, Raina, was staying focused. Were there other pieces of advice that looking back, you're like, wow, that was very helpful. Maybe you realized that at that time or looking back, you know, 2020, like that was key. And we should, you know, our listeners should keep that in mind. So key important advice that you wish you got or that you did actually get. I think depending on your career path and interests, how you can block out your time in the first few years of your career, transitioning from fellowship into junior faculty member and instructor can be really, really important. I was very fortunate in that it was sort of, I was told, here's your percentage of clinical effort, here's your percentage of research effort. With that comes, you know, some changes in compensation and stuff like that. That can be challenging to accept at first, but you don't realize just how valuable that time is to get everything set up so that as those priorities shift, as you move further down, further out into your career, your research projects are sort of moving forward on their own. You can take a little bit of a step back if you need to at various points. So really understanding sort of how you can budget your time from a clinical research standpoint can be really, really helpful. I will say, so during fellowship, I had my two kids who are now eight and six years old. And I think like many of us, you know, we we really wonder, is this going to be okay? Am I going to do okay during fellowship? Is my career going to go in the direction that I want it to? And I will say, again, kind of going back to what we were saying before, you can direct what direction your career goes in. um, And there's no set prescribed path for anybody. Do what you're passionate about. Do what's important to you. And as long as you, you work hard, you're honest and genuine with what you're doing, it will all work out. So I think those are wonderful pieces of advice. If people want to reach out to you on social media, how can people tweet at you? I know Frank definitely has a handle. Yeah, I have um, at Frank I. Scott MD on Twitter. Anyone can email me at frank.i.scott at cuanschutz.edu. It used to be University of Colorado or U Colorado, which was a lot easier to spell, but it's now CU Anschutz. So. <laughs> I too am on Twitter. It's at Raina Yadlapati, and people can email me also. And I think going back to the last question, That's something else I would have maybe thought about differently in hindsight. You know, I hesitated sometimes to take risks or contact folks that I thought were, you know, experts in the field or um, more senior to me. And I realized that everyone in this field just wants to help the future generations. And so don't hesitate to reach out. Worst thing is you won't get a response back, but that won't be from me. But yeah. I would like to echo that sentiment. There are some names in the IBD space that I was always super intimidated to talk to, and every single one of them has been incredibly nice and generous with their time and happy to help in any way that they can. I try to emulate that in all of my interactions with anyone that's more junior that reaches out to me as well. Fair enough. Well, thank you both for being here. This has really been wonderful, and I'm pretty sure our listeners learned a lot from both of you, so thanks so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you so much. This is great. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJ Whitson MD, at Nina Nandy MD, and at CSC MD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.